Thank you, choir, for lifting our hearts and bringing us to this place. Will you please pray with me? God of all things, we pray this morning that we might come and pour out our sense of worship for you. That it will not just be words, but it will be the smile from our neighbor, the passing of peace, the tenderness with which we regard one another, the scripture, the music, all of these things, O oh Lord, will be glorifying to you, illuminate our mind and spirit. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. Well, it's been quite a week, and no matter where you are or whether you're celebrating or whether you're disappointed, whether you're hope-filled or hopeless, we can all agree that it's been quite a week. But this is a different day, and we have a different purpose for gathering today. This is the Lord's Day, and in something that is a, quite a paradox, this day that we set aside for the Lord is just like any other day because they all truly belong to God. We just seem to forget the other six. Those six days were the days when God was creating, when God's vision for the world was taking shape. God envisioned a world of mutual caretaking among all of creation, a humanity that would hold delicately everything that God envisioned for us, individually and collectively, how God envisioned us to be together in the world. But we so often lose that sense of ownership by God, that sense of belonging when we hit the road on Sunday afternoon or Sunday night when the homework is due, when work is imminent in the morning and the morning comes, and it's almost as though we've been taken and thrust into this huge washing machine. And it isn't like we've been put on the delicate cycle either. We've been put on the comforter cycle. That cycle that's going to just scrub and, and pull and tug. Today is Veterans Day. On the first post-election Sunday. Thoughts for many people in many different directions, and yet they all come to meet. And the text for today is a compelling picture of God's vision for the world, the true reality of hope that we can carry with us. So once again, into the grime and the mud and the blood and dust of the battlefields, those battlefields, both foreign and domestic, both violent and vitriolic. Those battlefields, both physically brutal and spiritually disastrous. We are given, in the midst of that, this word, this vision of God's joy. And it's a word that when you read it and when you hear it and when it settles down into your bones... It's a word that is lavish. It's a word that is abundant and it's restorative. It's a word about everything that is good and holy with God's intention and will for us. 
Listen then to Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord, and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent is food, shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. I think to fully understand the impact of this particular text on the Hebrew people, you have to look into the context of what was going on in their lives. And it may be a context that is surprisingly contemporary. The text reflects a time when the people of Judah are divided and they are somewhat cynical about the prospects of their future. There is hardship in the land all around them and their lives are very difficult. Their resentment of other nations is strong because of their experience of scarcity and exile. And as a result, they are a people who have, for the most part, turned their backs on God. And they have begun to follow their own way according to their own devices. They are a people pursuing new venues for comfort and help rather than looking and leaning on Yahweh. And this has not gone unnoticed. And because of this, the prophet's vision, this vision of a new heaven and a new earth, is very difficult for them to embrace. I think that we can all recognize how difficult it is to embrace a promise when the promise seems so far away and so unlikely. When we're sitting maybe in the sludge or the aftermath of our own situation and our own heartbreak. And then this word also comes, if you're going to start new, the prophet says, if you're going to start with a new heaven and a new earth, then what you have to do is start living differently now. The way you're living now, the way you're thinking, the way you're behaving with each other has to end 
now so the new can be born. This is the prophet's vision of this word as promise. The promise is the possibility of everything becoming new, of life without unbearable regrets and haunting memories. And so he says, not only is it a new heaven and a new earth, but you're not going to remember the things that have passed away. You're not going to be able to hold the grudge or to remember or to think about the injustice that you experienced. It'll all be gone from your memory. The Word of God is very powerful, very powerful. God is capable of doing the most difficult thing of all, and that is creating something new out of something that is old. You know, a lot of times in construction, people will take a look at a building that exists and say it'd be less expensive if we just tear down the old building and start brand new. It would be easier for God just to get rid of everything and start brand new. But God has made covenant with us. God has, has vowed to be our God, to be the God that we have come to experience over the history of all time, a God that we can count on, a God that abides, a God that is patient a God that is loving. This is not creation that God is talking about out of nothing. This is creation out of the chaos of human endeavors, of spoiled nature, and of everything in between that. Imagine a new heaven and a new earth with what we have right now. Isaiah reminds us that God creates on an unimaginable scale new heavens and a new earth. In other words, there is nothing in all creation or in all that we imagine beyond creation that is beyond the capacity of God to change. Nothing. For those who are mired in regret or loss or broken lives, and for those ground down by oppression and the pain of living in bondage, what a message that would be. What a message that was for those people. What a message that is for us. Isaiah is saying, look, nothing is final until God says it's final. Everything is up for grabs in the mystery of the creative capacity of God. And as a new reality breaks in, it will turn the world and all of its dynamics upside down, which it constantly is doing. You know, at the heart of our faith is this abiding creator who delivers redemption even in the bleakest hour of our lives and even in the bleakest hour of the human history. God enters into that place to restore and to renew and to make brand new. No matter what the circumstances, God has the capacity to create new heavens and a new earth and God has promised to make it out of what we already endure and what we already know. Out of the familiar comes the new. This vision is what God intends for all things and all relationships. And in this vision, people are called back. Don't look 
elsewhere for comfort and hope. Don't count on yourselves. Because just like people, we ourselves will let ourselves down. We are less than we want to be. We are always striving to be better. And so don't place your hope and your comfort in people. Place your hope and comfort in God. Place your hope and comfort in the only one that can really deliver hope and comfort. This vision is what God intends, and it's an equally an invitation. Now, here's, the, here's where we stop talking about everything so much that God is doing, and we begin to realize that God is also inviting us to be part of the doing, always. God is not intending for us to sit back and just simply receive a newness. And maybe we'll get it and maybe we won't. But God calls us to come back in hope and trust to the God who restored us in the first place and to be involved, to get involved and then to act. The vision of the new heaven and the new earth fosters hope even as it elicits incisive action. No goal short of the restoration of all God's creation to its intended wholeness, no goal short of that, will satisfy the yearning of the Lord. Shortfalls don't devastate the servant. Because the campaign for justice is not a personal project, but it's part of God's eternal promise and eternal purpose. The text describes radical transformation of living conditions in the new Jerusalem. And unlike some other visions, this radical transformation is very concrete in what it lets us know will be the hallmarks of this new heaven and new earth. Very concrete and almost mundane at points. Things like low infant mortality, housing and food for all citizens, sustainable employment. And this is because this particular vision is as much about the possibilities of the present as it is about the hopes for the future. Such details as these push us to focus on the manner in which Jesus' church participates in messianic rule. That sounds like a big mouthful, but what it means is God has called us to be the body of Christ, the coming hope and salvation of the world, just as Jesus has become the hope and salvation for us as the Messiah. We are now a part of that messianic calling. We may never know how... God means to transform the universe, but we can confess that we know it is in God's power to do this. And what remains possible for the single individual, what remains possible for you, what remains possible for this particular congregation is to do the work involved in such transformation by following the pattern of mercy that Christ has laid out for us. Because of Jesus, we know that we are able to give one drink of water at a time, that we are able to bring comfort to the poor and the miserable 
one act of mercy at a time, one book given, one friendship claimed, one commitment of love, one can of beans, one moment of praise, one confession of God's presence, but for the asking, one moment in which another person is humanized rather than objectified, one challenge to set the order, one challenge to the order that is, that opposes justice for the poor. One declaration of the evil hiding in plain sight and one declaration that every single person is a child of God and worthy of our time, our resources, and our attention. These acts, they accumulate, and they accumulate within God's grace, and this accumulation is what transforms not just our own hearts, but the hearts of the world. This is what, this is what makes the DNA that is the transformative catalyst, the spark for the new heaven and the new earth. The whole of Isaiah is a messianic, uh, is a messianic call, and it rests on the messianic activity of God, that Messiah, that who will save us, nature of God. And so the church's job is not to cloister itself, proclaiming the resurrection, just in the everlasting. The proclamation is for the resurrection of life within this world as well. How do we resurrect hope, life, challenge, innovation, creativity, imagination? In, the in theological terms, it concerns what's called realized eschatology. How does God call us in the modern world to live as stewards of this world? of this biosphere if we rest only in the idea of life to come? How do we address children who live in constant hunger or so painful that they can't even stand up if our hope lies only with a future in eternity? Have we given up hoping for today? I wonder, have we abdicated our position as the body of Christ in the world the body of Christ is dynamic and feisty. Christ was not a silent, somber entity that simply moved this world in ghost-like sacred space. But Christ was real and moved this world with the whirlwind of the Holy Spirit. Have we stopped believing in God's capacity to use us for change? So how do we understand our call to respond and to participate in the new creation that Isaiah prophesies? This message of hope is more perceivable than ever with God's breaking into the world in the person of Christ. In order to restore humanity's relationship with God, we respond to God's grace not simply as a means one day to claim Isaiah's vision for ourselves, but in order to experience relationship with God here and now as God has called us into this holy, divine partnership. But that we are able to actively engage in God's reordering of creation, using what we know now 
understanding where we are now, looking to the nature of God and saying, we must follow that nature and speak and act on behalf of the vision that God has. We step out with hope in the God who creates and reconciles and sustains us. There is no denying that in all of this, that the our elements of radical suffering still continues. And it still exists in the world, and it will continue to exist. However, we are given a foretaste of the new heaven and earth through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you remember that vision that I read at the beginning, created by God, we are given gifts and abilities and invited to participate in the ongoing formation of the new Jerusalem for all children of God. And by doing so, we can alleviate and diminish suffering. The question is, how do we get in on what God is doing? Are we identifying our God-given gifts to figure out how it is we can participate in the kingdom of God here and now? What are your gifts what is your passion, and how does your passion collide with the needs of the world, as Beekner says? When those two collide, you can be sure that you're on the road to living out your purpose, your passion, and the needs of the world. What would human community look like when no one is weeping? When people would not die before they had a chance to live a lifetime? How would such a community spend its resources? How would the common good be embraced when all people had the opportunity to live in the fullness of time? And this involves health care and education, safe neighborhoods and plentiful good water and environmental stewardship and being mission partners with people around the world in our own backyard as well as across the seas. What if all of these human goods are not just the pipe dreams of social idealists, but they are the envisioned future that God has for all of us? My job as a preacher is simply to point towards the future that God has already announced in Scripture. That's my job. So if you have heard something that sounds more like social gospel, then you've not heard correctly. Because what I am preaching is the vision from Isaiah. Economic justice is never far from the Isaiah's vision. In a human community created for the joy of God, labor is not done for the rich and the few. The land is God's gift to all. And as all join in the work of building and planting, they shall all inhabit the dwellings and eat the fruits of their labor. To labor in vain and not to see an escape of one's children out of the poverty and oppression that one has experienced is the scourge of exile and captivity. It is what they suffered with in that time. The sustenance of true community is in deep and active relationship with God. It really is a sad prospect when you think about it. To think of a world without servants who are willing 
to sacrifice their opinion, their judgments, and their attention to themselves and labor for no other reason than that God has called us to be agents of a love that is intended to restore the dignity and the wholeness of every person. For those, one promise, for those of us here in this community, one promise in this vision is more precious than all the others. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. God's promise in Isaiah is to be listening so closely to the deepest part of our hearts that before we even recognize our own conviction, before we're even aware that something is stirring, something is moving, God hears it and attends to it and nurtures it and fosters it. It is in a a sacred incubator waiting to be born. And before we get our concern out of our mouth, God will hear. Such is an intimacy that is always ready and always available. If we simply have ears to hear the loving and constant invitation. So this morning, my friends, even in the wake of all that we've experienced, all that we've experienced in the, in the greater agenda as well as in the personal agenda and in the personal lives and spaces of our, our own constant days, let us continue with our lives remembering the sacrifice of so many, remembering all of those young men and women who marched to war, counting on the time when we would usher in a new heaven and a new earth, where war would no longer be necessary. Let us honor and remember them. God hears us with that honor. And let us continue with our lives, remembering that there is no power greater than God's power and that this very moment reflects but a speck of time in the human narrative. And that God, this God, unchanging, constant God, has the capacity and will to weave redemption into all times, every space, and in all places, God hears us. And let us continue with our lives with faithful and grateful living. That's a prayerful life. Living faithfully and living gratefully is prayerful. When you live a grateful life, when you're grateful, you have a hard time hating. You have a hard time fearing. You have a hard time being pulled apart from that which ushers every good thing to us. Let us continue living our lives with hearts that break for the weak and the vulnerable. And with hearts convicted to share in words and example, but more profoundly with intentional acts of mercy and sacrifice and labor. And God hears each and everything that we offer up. Let us continue to live into God's vision for all the world. Because when you read this vision, notice 
what it says about God's joy. It says that God's joy is to create the new and the beautiful city. A city that represents communities everywhere. A city that represents all cities. Even or perhaps especially those who have turned away from God, love of neighbor, and justice for everyone. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Thanks be to God.